This is Talking Dirty, Get Gardening's podcast for plant lovers. The video version is available on our Get Gardening YouTube channel, so you can head over there if you want to see our ugly mugs, and there are pictures of the plants there as well. There are full plant lists on our Twitter and Instagram at Get Gardening Now, so go check those out. But without further ado, let's start Talking Dirty. Hello and welcome to episode 33 of Talking Dirty. Over at East Ruston Old Vicarage, looking positively preppy today, we have Alan Edward Herbert Gray, our happy and ever more handsome horticulturalist. <laughs> so she says. <laughs> well, way down in Cambridgeshire, we have Thordis, Maria Sophia Friedrichsen. Oh I my God. Say, <laughs> I have to say, your smile just lights the place up, Thordis. It's absolutely delightful. Um, and it's probably something to do with the guy that we've got on with us today, because he's a kind of a happy guy himself, I think. Well, he is. He's also really not very far away from me, also in Cambridgeshire. We have got a guy commonly known as Mr. Snowdrop. He is a brilliant plant breeder, the man behind Monk Silver Nursery, Joe Sharman. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, and on the Mr. Snowdrop note, uh, sometimes I can't hear people on the phone and I say, it's Joe, and then I say, Joe Snowdrop? <laughs> oh, yeah, we know who you are. So yeah, I, go around, I go around as Joe Snowdrop, which people, people actually understand, which is quite incredible, really. Do you have any middle yeah. names to bring to the party? I do, I do. So uh, it would be Lawrence Leplay. So Lawrence with a W, and then Leplay as in L-E-P-L-E-Y. Wow. What's the origin of that? Uh, it's a, a, a Victorian French connection. Wow. And so our family has had the right to use the Le Play name uh, if we wish to. So it's one of those names that goes down in the family that we can use if we want. And mostly I don't. I just use L. Something is attacking me here. <laughs> well, I tell you what, this cloth has been sitting here and I think it's full of lace wings uh, or possibly queen wasps. So if you see a queen wasp behind me that I can't see, please tell me and I'll kill it. But um, anyway, so, um, so yes, normally I just put L, which stands for Lawrence. Brilliant. I think that might be the most interesting middle name story we've ever had on the podcast. So well done. And you mentioned this, um, this amazing tablecloth behind you. So anyone who's yeah. watching the video version of the podcast will be able to see this. But just describe it for anyone who's listening to the audio version. Okay, well, there's a lady called Eileen Bayliss who lives uh, in Penn Village near Wolverhampton. And she had the idea of trying to get every single Galanthophile's signature and embroider it on a tablecloth with their favourite flower. And I was quite involved in this because a lot of the Galanthophiles are dead already. But being who I am, I collected all the letters from all the people I'd known over the years and I had all their signatures on the letters. So I was able to supply Eileen with the signatures of the people many of which are now on this tablecloth behind me with their favourite flower. And it's, it, it took her a long time to do, and it's the most amazing piece of work. It's exquisite. Um, so does that mean your signature is on there somewhere? I'm there somewhere, but I, I'm not going to take it down to show you exactly where I am <laughs> on it, but I am on there somewhere, yes, exactly. Well, it's, it's an apt backdrop. Um, I, I don't know, I think the last time I saw you would have been at a plant fair at East Ruston Old Vicarage, selling, you know, you have a wonderful nursery that's full of every kind of plant anyone could ever well, want. All sorts of spring and, spring and summer stuff. Yeah. And that's what people know me for when I'm at Allen's. You know, but uh, obviously we do a snowdrop event at Allen's, which unfortunately this year had to be cancelled. 
but so you know every year normally there's a snowdrop event uh, at uh, East Ross. Yeah. Now hang on, Joe, just a minute. Spring and summer, yes, of course, I quite agree. But we did a we did a late um, plant fair last year, and I mean your stand was absolutely stonking with um, some of the most memorable and amazing plants. I think almost <laughs> all year round, I could put a table up of interesting and rare plants, and that's what I specialise in. So not only are they pretty, but I try and do really rare and unusual stuff as well. Uh, and, you know, you could challenge me any month and I would produce you a lovely table for stuff. It's quite the feat. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we let's not spend the whole podcast talking about snowdrops because there are so yeah, many other fine. things we want to talk about. But I mean, we can't have Mr. Snowdrop on and not talk uh, a, a bit about the, the kind of breeding you've done and the breeding you're doing at the moment. Um, I mean, would I be remotely right in saying that you really spearheaded a lot of the Galanthus breeding? Well, I was the first person to seriously um, consider what parents I could put with what to get what aim. Um, mostly when we started, people were just going around to old gardens. They were finding plants that had uh, been in gardens for a long time. They'd started to hybridize on their own. They produce results. And you'd find a nice snowdrop, you'd take it out and it would get named and distributed. But no one had any clear idea of its origin. And so what I was starting to do was to put two parents together to prove the origin of the existing plants that we already knew. So um, you might find a plant that's lovely and speculate. I don't need to speculate. I can prove its parents. And then I had the idea of trying to aim for particular combinations. So I would say to myself, well, we have a green single one, we have a green double one, and we have a yellow single one. Why isn't there a yellow double one? So then I would say, what do I need to do to put the right parents together to get the yellow double one? And then I would work on that. And it's a long process. It's a long process. <laughs> it's an exceedingly long process. I mean, Golden Fleece, for instance, is one of your snowdrops, I believe. Um, and I think it took, well... You tell me how many years it actually took before we well, were from, able to... From, ha from having the idea, yeah. uh, I then put first two parents together, which was obviously Trim and Wendy's Gold. So I put those two together. And uh, it took five years to flower the seedlings. Five years. And then um, I all the seedlings were green. Um, with Some had green tips on the outers and some didn't. But I realised, because I'd used the yellow as the mother, that the yellow gene had to be hidden inside as a recessive. So then yeah. I put a second yellow back onto that cross. I had to wait another five years for that to flower. And then when it did flower, I had six seedlings and one of them turned out to be golden fleece. The year after that, I repeated the cross with more parents and I actually ended up with 120, um, which I've then planted out. And they're, you know, they're a mixture of normal greens, normal yellows, green tip greens and yellow tip yellows. And from that population, I'm now able to select interesting things. And of course, they are now crossing back with each other naturally to produce even more interesting things. So it took me 10 years to create the plants. Then I had one, but it took me a further eight years to get to the point where I could sell one because you have to propagate them very, very slowly and carefully. So eight years to, to produce enough to sell one. So a total of 18 years together. It's quite a long Joe, time. You 
Joe, you've got to live forever, I have to tell you, because there's so many exciting things that I know that, you know, you get little little wisps of rumours of um, various <laughs> colours, influences and things like that. There's so yes. many things happening. You really have got to live forever because it's 18 years. <laughs> well, I know, but then obviously you, you're doing crosses every year. So, you know, they're all in progress. And then oh, you yeah. have an idea, well, you know, what can I do? What I would dearly love to have is a double trim. That is, it's green tips all the way around on the outers and the inners, but anything up to 20 or 30 petals. I really would love to be the first person to do that. I now know how to do that. I'm doing the crosses every year to do that, but I'm still waiting. I have to be patient. It's a, it's a long and slow game. You have to be patient. Well, can I, can I tempt you, possibly, <laughs> to tempt us with a little, um, uh, shall we say, forecast a, a pretty certain forecast of what we might look forward to so let's just say in the next five to ten years okay well I, let me tell you where i'm going at the moment so where i'm going at the moment there's um a snowdrop that's called blondinger and people yeah. have grown blondinger for a long time not really you know it's pretty it's yellowish um whatever no one actually realized that the genetic combination that's in blondinger will be transmitted to its seedling okay so the genes will move over and when it crosses with another plant, a proportion of those plants will have the same character as Blondinger. And so I'm starting to try and create and I am creating. I've got seedlings flowering already, which I'm not going to show you the photos of because I don't want to get, get too excited. Where I've crossed that with snowdrops that are completely green outside and inside. And what happens there is that the yellow character, which is uh, which will move over and it will give me a snowdrop that's completely yellow on the outside and the inside. So I'm definitely moving on that one. The other area which I'm working on, um, which I'm going to show you because I've got one here waiting, is the snowdrops which have got an apricot or orange tint. And I first noticed many, many years ago in a population in an old garden, a couple of plants that had the faintest, merest, faintest suggestion of the fact that they might be uh, the colour that wasn't white, little, little shading of apricot. So me being me, I then would cross those two together and then I choose the best seedlings from that. And then I cross those two together again and get the best seedlings from that. And I've been selecting to get more and more and more better orange flowers. Now, if you're looking with the naked eye and your eye is not tuned, sometimes you can see this plant not actually realised, but what you need to do is see it next to a white one. So if I, for instance, I go and get two plants outside and then wave them in front, and then you'll see a clear white one and you'll see uh, an orange one. So we, what I've got here uh, is EA bowls, which yeah. is a, a poculiform. So all six petals are white and the same length. It's a good, clean white, a very nice white. And then I've got one of my orange seedlings. So let me show you the inside, because when you, when you look inside, uh, the orange colour is much stronger. So yeah. if you look in there, can you see the orangey colour in the middle? You can see stronger? a bit of a blush. But this, see, this is, if I photograph this plant on its own, the camera is automatically readjusting the colour to become white because the camera sort of thinks, oh, it's a snowdrop, it needs to be white. <laughs> so the camera is balancing the colour. And it's only when you put the white and the orange together that you, that you can really, you know, you can see that difference. And, uh, you know, Alan... I'm sure you'd love to, um, you know, actually see a plant in the flesh because you really would get it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and want one. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> well, unfortunately, we sold out for this season. So, and um, because, because of the way I'm doing it, I'm not doing it, um, I'm doing some as clones, that is to say, I'm reproducing them 
using propagation methods in that way. But I'm also growing it from seed on a regular basis and hybridizing and crossing from seed. So um, I'm creating it more as a race or a strain than an actual variety. So that means that I'll only be selling the best ones, the, the ones that are the most orange color, whether they be clones or whether they be seedlings. As someone who is famed for loving orange and increasingly loves snowdrops, bringing the two together is a joyful thing indeed. Um, <laughs> I know that you've gathered together lots of show and tell. W what other things have you got to tempt us with? Well, one thing I've got, I've got a few uh, little plants here. Um, oh, there are some exciting things flashing past the camera at the moment. Well, hopefully so. I might have to shout at somebody in a minute to get me some more. So here we have um, a, a double aconite. Oh, that's nice. And uh, this this is one that turned up at Anglesey Abbey many, many years ago. And it turned up um, with uh, a guy called Noel Ayres, who was the gardener there in the 50s and 60s. And he found this plant and realised it was unusual and decided to hide it in one little corner of the garden, which is what he did. And it's only when I got to know Richard, his son, who was also head gardener at Anglesey, that I was privileged enough to go into this little corner and see these amazing double aconites. And I managed to persuade Richard to give me some, of course, you know, I can be, I can be persuasive, I hope. <laughs> um, and um, uh, you, then I got it and then I started to propagate it. Then I figured out how to do it, how to make it more of it. You know, you, could you grow it from seed? Well, yes, you could. Could you do it from division? Well, yes, you could. And then I worked and worked and worked until I was able to start selling it. I also was the person who put it up for award at the RHS halls uh, many years ago as well. So now um, this plant is well and truly established in the garden. So this is a, a, one of the first doubles that was known. And you can see, if you look in, individually in the flower there, yellow and green with stripes. You can just see possibly the yellow and green stripes there. What is what's, what's that one called? This is Noel Ayres. It is Noel Ayres. It is Noel Ayres, yeah. So, so this is, you can see the flowers are mostly yellow, but with, with green striping in. Yeah. More doubles obviously occur. And over time, let me, let me quickly down. Over time, people have looked at populations of wild aconites, and you, anybody can do this. Anybody can go out to any churchyard or any estate or anywhere they like, and they can look at the wild aconites, and then they can find other variations that turn up. And one of the ones that turned up in Germany, which is this one here, I don't know if you can see that, where the flowers are almost entirely green. Can you actually see that? That so is amazing. Yeah. 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 And I, just want to know, I just want to know if that's the one that I bought from you last year. <laughs> well, if you spent a uh, hundred pounds, then it was. <laughs> yeah. um, Anyways, I can't admit to such a thing, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I, I learned about this plant in Germany and uh, a lot of haggling went on to get me a plant. But I was already confident from my experience with Noel Ayres that I knew how to propagate it. And I knew how to propagate it in a way that no one else did because I'd learned a method that no one else had learned. So I knew that if I could get hold of this beautiful beautiful, hideous, hideous, beautiful, um, aconite, then I would be able to propagate it. And the same is true with other plants. You know, I, I, I've learned how to propagate rare plants. That's what I do. All you've got to do is get the plant to me, I will do it. Have you propagated different aconites from the green one? Uh, well, it, it almost never produces a stamen. Right. So very, very rarely do you get a stamen. I've got one flower with stamen. 
And then I can then use that stamen to put the pollen onto another plant. But you have to remember that um, the, 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 this plant itself has no female parts. So it cannot make seed. Okay, the no right. seed will come from this. Um, but uh, it will make the odd stamen, in which case then you can then keep going. In the same way that double snowdrops do, they make the odd stamen and the double gene is carried in the pollen and therefore you can then get more double flowers by breeding. So once I'd got this thing, and then I could start propagating it, and then I could um, be on. It took me a few years to get it going, and then once you get it going, then you can start selling it. It's still incredibly rare and really slow, and that's why the price is so high. But we're now getting to the point where I can give you a box like this. You can see how many flowers are in there, and you know I might have anything 10, 20 boxes looking like this. And what's okay. that one called? This is called, uh, uh, I hope your German's good, <laughs> Andenken Anne which means in memory of, and then the person's name is Johannes, which is easy, because that's just John, and his surname is Raschka. So, Andenken and Johannes Raschka. Wow. <laughs> okay. So, that's a horrible name, um, and I'm always having a, a slight campaign, um, a, you know, on my European neighbours to just use an international name. It doesn't have to be uh, a name that isn't German, it just has to be a name that will move from one country to another. And some of them take this on board and some of them don't. Um, <laughs> so we have, well, we have one person who wants to name a snowdrop. He wants to call it Bachtmeister Dimpfelposter. Well, it's a nightmare to spell. It's a nightmare to write on a label. And no one's going to buy a plant called Bachtmeister Dimpfelposter. They're just not going to buy it, are they? Whereas if it's called no. Anita or it, you know, Thordis or <laughs> Alan, people are going to buy it. You know? right, right, right. And they're going to remember it. They're going to remember it. Yeah, exactly. Because when you have a plant that's called Alan Gray, you have got a person in your head every time you look at the plant. Like when I look at this one, which was Noel Ayers, I have a person in my head every single time. And snowdrops mm. and rare plants are like that. You're carrying the memory of the plantsman as well as growing the plant. But Joe, you, you, you have a lot of plants that you actually, that are named after famous gardeners of, shall we say, yesteryear? Yes. Yeah. Um, Ellen Wilmot. Ellen Wilmot. Um, that's the wallflower. Um, yeah. The way of us, our present generation, keeping the memory of all these people alive. And we keep the memory alive by growing and sharing their plants and sharing their name. And somebody says, Ellen Wilmot, Ellen Wilmot. Who was Ellen Wilmot? And then we go into this story about Wally and the most incredible woman who spent a fortune and lost a fortune yeah. all on gardening and, um, you know, sponsored a Chelsea exhibit all on her own. And she was the most amazing plantswoman. And for, How, people that, for people that don't know her, she gardened at Wally Place in Essex, which is East Anglia. Yeah, each name is a book. And you yeah. open the book and suddenly you find out about this person. You find E.A. Bowles, as I showed you E.A. Bowles. There's a huge story behind him. But you can't know the story. You have to look at the plant and suddenly start the question, who was this person? You know, who is this person that is being commemorated by this plant? And, um, you know, so Alan, when's your plant? When are you going to get a plant for you? <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, it, Ruston, it, I'll, I'll chuck it over to you, Joe. <laughs> well, East Ruston, East Ruston hasn't named very many, has it? No. You have a wallflower. We Ruston have a wallflower. Royal. You've got your Ruston holly. Royal, yeah. uh, what's the holly? I don't know that, do I? Oh, the holly, there's a there's a golden holly which is called East Rust and Gold. Right. Okay. Gold, 
it's, it's a seedling that we found here which has golden berries yeah and susan andrews came up and she actually went and looked at it and she took it away and said yes we will name it east ruston gold well i think you should name a plant alan gray because i want to buy it you want to buy it <laughs> i want to buy lots <laughs> Okay, well, uh, let's see if I've got something that's worth a thousand pounds. Yes, come on, yay! Uh, and then we can do some money transfers from, uh, <laughs> from. Well, anything that's named Alan Gray has got to be very special and expensive. Well, one of the things I've tried to do is is to you know, for instance, if there's a famous plants person, so many times after this person's died, the plant that gets named for them is just a piece of rubbish. And so people like me and others will try and make sure that we've got a really nice plant named for us while we're still alive. <laughs> so, you know, I've got a, a really good snowdrop called Joe Sharman. You know, we, we've named plants for each other while we're still alive. Because, as I say, the number of plants that have been named for people after they've died, because people rush to name things without judging whether it's a good plant or a distinct plant or a, a really good quality plant. So if you can do that while you're still alive. So, Alan. You need to choose a really nice plant that you've created or you've found, <laughs> and then you can have your name on it. Your garden's so big. Yeah, there, there must be seedlings turning up all the time. Yes, there are. I mean, I'm quite excited because, um, it, well, as you know, you came to my garden before we used to do snowdrop days. And I said, well, I really hadn't, haven't got that many snowdrops. And you went for a quick sort of twinkle around the garden. And then we found that there was something like 60 or 80 varieties. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's fourfold that now. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and they are now producing seedlings. Well, I don't do complicated um, plant breeding such as Mr. Joe Sharman does, Mr. Snowdrop. <laughs> I, do, I just wait to see if something happens. So if something happens, then it would be wonderful. But if it doesn't, then I'm not going to make it happen. But no. if something, if I, if I get a good enough plant, I like well enough. I'll, I'll run it past you and see what you say. But, I mean, think about, think about the diversity you have. I mean, you've got, you've got, fuchsias you've got all the herbaceous plants you've got all those lovely tender plants in the walled garden you've got so many different plants in your garden the probability that something nice is going to turn up should be really high yes. and so you know it's just keeping your eyes open and you know it could be a sport on a branch of a tree it could be absolutely anywhere it's just keeping your eyes open and you no know, you just provided me with the most wonderful excuse for my garden not being overly tidy <laughs> No, no, correct. Absolutely correct. No, let me tell you. I tell. Let me tell you about this. The, the, the nurseries that are really tidy do not produce new plants. Yeah, quite. And the nurseries that are a bit of a mess with seeds going on all over the place and a bit chaotic, they're the ones that produce plants because things are allowed to grow and hybridize and do their stuff. And if you're too clean and too tidy, you won't get new plants. I do like this Bloody free pass for untidiness, my kind of, my kind of gardening. <laughs> and it's, it's interesting to see the aconites because there's, there's an acceptance of the breeding work that's gone into snowdrops and the fact that snowdrops can cost a phenomenal amount of money. Whether people realise that the same thing is happening with aconites, I don't know, but they are becoming something that people are willing to splash a lot of cash on. Well, we, we, we sell a variety that, that went recently on eBay for over £200. Um, but, you know, so I am I am breeding with aconites, but I find them more difficult than um, snowdrops to get the two characters together that I need. Firstly, there's a limited range of characters. So you've only got sort of creams, oranges, yellows, uh, greens and singles and doubles. So the, the, the range of characters is much smaller to play with to start with. But then you've got to keep pushing the boundaries 
Um, I've got a lovely split-petaled aconite, which I'm now trying to get in all sorts of different colours, but it's a slow process. It's like breeding the celandines. When I started working on the celandines, um, the first cross I did, I realised I'd got the genes across, but none of the plants were doing what I wanted. So I planted them in a corner and let them stew, and it took 13 years, 13 years, before I got the first one that was doing what I wanted. But I, once I'd done the experiment once, then I knew how to go a bit faster. So the next process I did, it only took me four years to get the new one because I learned how to go faster. And it is, it's a really, it's a learning game. You have to play and mess and put things together, see what happens. And then you learn from what you've done and you go on and you get faster and faster and more targeted at where you're going. Oh, do you know my favorite? I don't know whether it's one of yours or not. It's a favourite of mine, and it's partly the name that does it. It's called Double Mud. Double Mud turned up at uh, RHS Wisley Garden uh, in Bowles Corner, and it was one of the plants that was rescued from E.A. Bowles's garden. And What a pedigree. Yeah, a good pedigree, fantastic pedigree. It was, a whole series of plants was rescued from Bowles's garden after he died, and they were all planted in one corner at Wisley, and Double Mud was one of those. So wow. it's good, got a good pedigree. <laughs> yeah. Behind the scenes, uh, we thought we would just stop recording and go and get some celandines, seeing as we were talking about them. So Joe's done a quick scurry away onto the nursery. Um, so what have you brought? Well, what I've done is I've brought uh, some of the parents that I used to create um, the doubles that I made. And this, yeah, I know, you can't <laughs> see a thing. Uh, it's a variety called Double, double Bronze. So double bronze has got yellow on the front, and a, a, a curious sort of orangey brown on the back. And the thing that set me off was I realized that this thing had started to seed in my garden and a proportion of the seedlings were single and a proportion of the seedlings were double. So I realized then that actually the double gene could be passed on to the, to the progeny. So then I started crossing and crossing as I do and I turned up with a series of double oranges. Let's see if we can get in this right place. Can you see that? Yeah. yeah. So it's a double orange with red back. So using double bronze with um, something as simple as Aurantiarchus gave me this uh, double orange one. And I've got a series of six different double oranges. But they're all green leaves. So then I thought, well, instead of using a uh, green leaf variety, why don't I use a purple leaf variety? So I, then I got myself a beautiful purple leaved one like this. And there's a variety called Copper Knob, which is purple leaved and orange flowered. And then I crossed that with double bronze. And um, I came up with a variety that I've called Jacqueline, which is the most amazing purple leaves with really rich double orange flowers. Well, that's fantastic. And then I've created a whole series with purple leaves and double cream flowers using double mud, the double mud that we talked about earlier. Yeah. And where I'm going next is, if you can imagine, there's a set series of colours. So we've got yellow, we've got cream, and we've got orange. So that's three colours. So what I started to work on, I asked myself the question, why am I not getting colours that are intermediate between those three colours? So then I started to do my, my crosses with doubles to try and get the colours that are between those other colours. 
And so the first one I've got here, I call Nicole, and she is a color that's halfway between the cream and the yellow. And I'm now working on colors which are going to be halfway between the orange and the cream, but all still double. So, so you know, once you understand, then you can really start moving and working and creating new stuff. But you just yeah, can, I, can I just ask something? If 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 one has these um, these celandines with, uh, let's say, double orange with uh, bronze foliage, if if you actually yeah. had them in your garden, do they seed around? And if so, the progeny will the progeny come? Will will they all have bronze leaves or not? Okay, so so uh, uh, a lot most of the doubles, uh, I would say certainly over half the flowers and possibly more than half are totally sterile right so there's no functional parts in the middle but a small proportion of the flowers will have stamens and they will have the female parts the carpels so you have to hunt through the flowers and you have to find the ones with the stamens and with the fertile fertile female parts so you can then move the pollen over so in your garden the answer is they will seed but the rate will be really, really slow because the chances of them, you know, a bee moving the pollen onto a, a fully fertile flower are quite limited. I think, I think for some people that's a blessed relief because um, single yeah. snowdrop. I'm thinking of brazen huzzy, for instance, which yeah. is found in the woods at Great Dixter somewhere. Yeah. Um, that is a bronze leaf, single yellow um, celandine. If that self seeds, a great proportion um, it self seeds, shall we say, with alacrity. I mean, it's almost. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, as if it's got diarrhea, the seedlings. It's a weed. It's a weed. <laughs> Incontinently. Um, uh, but a huge proportion of them are green. And you, if you don't rogue them out, they will the green will gradually take over. Yeah. This is why, the, why there's a tremendous advantage to the doubles, because they don't seed in the same way. So that they will only reproduce from bulbils. So therefore, anything that does occur will be the same as the parent. Yeah, because the proportion that seed and there are some other sterile varieties, too. So there are varieties that will never produce seed. They're not double, but they will never produce seed because that's the way the flower is and they just don't produce seed. So, you know, what I'm doing is learning this and then I'm speeding the process up to get the things that I want. You definitely have a certain type of brain, Joe. I think <laughs> while technically, I suppose, if people knew your methods, anybody could figure out how to, to, to do any of this. I do think you've got to have a certain, well, you've got to have a huge amount of patience and organisation, but just well, a mindset to be able to do it. It's, it's, this is why I don't mind sharing how I do things. <laughs> because most people, it's the same as the nursery business. You share how to propagate plants. People say, yes, yes, yes. And you think, oh, they'll all be producing a million. You come back five years later. No, they haven't produced a million because they don't have the time. They don't have facilities. Um, they now have the know-how, but they can't push themselves to create the time to do this thing. And sometimes I can assure you, getting the time to do these things that I've done is quite difficult because it all has to happen when I'm already ridiculously busy. So pushing myself to make the time to do these things is one of the hardest bits. And we all have busy lives. We all want to do this, that and the other. And somehow, you know, the idea of getting pollen from one, one plant and putting on another plant <laughs> isn't on the top of people's list. They've got other things to do. Um, and and I, I really sometimes have to really push myself to actually do it. But once I've done it, the results are so amazing. 
and we and all benefit as well. It. We all get we reap the rewards. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> but it's you know finding the time is not always easy. Can I just ask another question about double celandines? Yeah. Um, if you if if for instance we have an infestation of celandines in the garden, and I do. Um, I don't mind them too much because they estivate quite quickly. By the end of April, this, the foliage is gone yep. um, and they're underground. But if you dig amongst them and you break up those little bulb bulbils, um, which is why they were called piewort, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Each one of those <laughs> becomes a new plant. Does the same thing happen with the double? Well, the, the, the little tubers that break off, yes, of course. Yeah. Each yeah, one will right. become, a, but at least it's, it's, it's more pretty. But I mean, some people don't mind because you say they, they, they come up, they really pretty, beautiful, very cheery, and then they go away again. Yeah. They're, they're very poor competition. So they don't squash other plants, kill other plants. They don't, they're, not, they're not a negative per companion in the garden. No, I mean, they're absolutely fabulous for early understory planting. Yeah, and I, I'm learning that things like cyclamen hedrofolium is actually not a nice neighbor. Cyclamen hedrofolium sticks its leaf out and squashes somebody here and another leaf and squashes somebody there and it squashes everybody all around it. So they're not good neighbours. That's a defence mechanism. But they're not good neighbours. If I've got small plants next door, it's no. not good. Whereas a celandine no. comes up between, disappears early and away it's gone. Do you have any other bits and bobs of show and tell or have we exhausted your plant material? Well, the uh, one, another area I'm very, very interested in is air. Uh, so there's one or two, but the, the one I've got here, you probably won't be able to see, see the difference. Now, Arums are a completely different game when it comes to breeding plants because the flower comes up like this and a fly has to go into the flower. It gets trapped inside the flower and it buzzes round and round inside the flower and it spreads the pollen about. And then as the flower decays, the fly is then released and it comes out and then it goes round and it comes back into another flower and moves the pollen. As a human being, being able to get the flower at the right stage, get the pollen out and move it onto another flower. That's really quite tricky because it happens over a period of seven or eight days. And so far, I've never actually managed to deliberately breed arums. And the only way you can do it really is by putting the two parents together and letting the flies get on with the job. And that's how some people breed snowdrops. They put the two parents together and then, then they let the uh, nature do it. But um, so with arums, it's, it's, it's a much more of a challenge. And... Um, what are you trying to breed with the arums, Joe? Do you know the arum that's called monk silver? You know the arum that's called monk silver? Yes. Yes, which you, you grow. Yeah. yeah. It's a really fantastic, strong, vigorous, silver-leaved variety of arum. Yeah. Well, there's several of us are trying to put that combination with the purple spotting. So we've got a really good silver leaf with purple spotting. And so I've now um, put the two parents together and all I have to do is wait. But we've got two, two friends in Germany one up in Hamburg and one who's near Cologne. And the two of them, just letting nature do its thing, have managed to turn up seedlings, which are the most amazing silver, as monk silver is, but with purple spots as well. So there, right. are, there are combinations out there that haven't yet occurred. But as I say, the breeding is much more tricky uh, because of this whole business of having to be a fly, and I'm not a fly. <laughs> and I can't do this for three hours inside a plant. Um, you know, that's just how it goes. So. Um, so I, the, the arum, well, you probably won't see this. I've got, a, I have got an arum here. You may not be able to see this, but this oh, yes, is, it's a golden leaves arum italicum. You can't see the golden because really uh, the, the technology won't allow. But if it was next door to a dark green leaf one, you'd really see the difference. Um, 
And so these are things that are much more likely to be selections from what's occurred in your garden as opposed to being deliberate crosses. And that's just the way it goes. And what's um, the name of that one? Uh, Anne McNabb. So that's Aram Anne McNabb. And I'm just about to... Village <laughs> and Narcissi, uh, they are much easier to deal with because the actual structures within flower are much more similar to snowdrop. You've got a very clearly defined stamen. You've got a very clearly defined stigma. And so then you can move the pollen around quite quickly. The issue with a daffodil is that if snowdrop can take three, four, five years to flower, a daffodil will often take six, seven, eight years to flower. So they're much slower to flower from seed. And they're also much slower to um, uh, propagate. So when you're doing it by chipping or twin scaling, they're, they're much slower to, to increase. And I find them more difficult than snowdrops. But I, I do love my dwarf daffodils and I'm always crossing daffodils together and trying to create new things. Again, we've got a slight problem in that we've only got two colours. We've got a, a cream and we've got a yellow. And trying to break out of those colours in, in the miniatures, you know, in the big daffodils, we've got lots of different colours. We've got pinks, we've got oranges, we've got doubles, we've got all sorts of things going on. But in the miniatures, those colours are not available. And um, nothing is open early enough to be able to cross with the miniatures to get those other colours in. But there is a daffodil that flowers in um, November, and that's Narcissus uh, asturiensis, Cedric Morris. So Cedric Morris flowers regularly in November. It flowers through December and into January, and it's still flowering now. Alan, do you grow that one? Yeah, I do. Yeah. So I'm trying to cross that with some of these pale cream varieties to get the pale cream colour earlier and earlier and earlier to come in before Christmas. So if I can have a range of early flowering ones in, in a set of colours as opposed to just the one colour of Cedric Morris. So that's where I'm, that, that's the only thing I could do to try and get that flowering time earlier with colours. Joe, have you ever thought of working with uh, Narcissus cyclaminius? I can't grow it oh. because, my, uh, because I'm too limey. So, right. you know, for cyclaminius, you need to have acid soil and I can grow mini cycla. I can grow the hybrids of cyclaminius um, and I can grow, that's a primary hybrid minicycler, and I can grow some of the secondary crosses of cyclaminius, but I can't grow it itself. So yes, that would be lovely. But I've got things to play with like um, Jacetanus, you know Jacetanus? Yes. It's a little, little tiny, tiny miniature, perfect little daffodil, but only this high. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so I've got, I've got one or two other species to play with, but not, there isn't, you know, but my palette is much smaller, so there's less I can do. But I'm still determined to have a go. So, you know, I'll, I'll have a go anyway. What was the little one there, the little Narcissus you had? The one I showed you is, is, called, uh, is called Candle Power. So Candle Power, it starts uh, fairly middling yellow here. You can just see this in bud. And then as it ages, it gets whiter and whiter and whiter. So by the time you get to the end of its flowering period, it's almost a good cream colour. And that character of the colour change is, again, something that would be lovely to push before Christmas. So you actually had varieties flowering in November with a colour change, not merely cream, but with a colour change. So in a big clump of this, it looks absolutely stunning. Alan, do you grow this one, Candle Power? I had it from you, Joe, and I just yeah. have to say that it is an exceedingly robust little chap. Yeah. It makes a large clump very quickly. In actual yeah. fact, I've got a big pot of it in one of our greenhouses at the moment. Coal greenhouse, always yeah. ventilated. 
Um, but there's a big pot of it and it's in full flower at the moment. It looks absolutely heavenly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good parent. It's a fantastic parent because of all this vigor, this superb vigor and because of this color change. So, you know, I always, I always work on the little miniature daffs. I'm not really into the big vulgar things, I'm afraid. I grow a few of them, but really I'm into the <laughs> miniatures. But if I could get if I could get orange into the miniatures, wow, I'd be that'd be fantastic, wouldn't it? Yeah. You might have to get it from a, one of those large blousy chaps. <laughs> well, the pro the problem is that all the miniatures have finished, all the miniatures I grow have finished by the time the big blousy ones open. Yeah. So there, there's a timing difference. The other issue is that most of those big giant daffodils are all tetraploid or polyploid. That is to yeah. say they have multiple sets of genes inside each plant. Yeah. Whereas most of my little species ones, the little dwarf ones, have only got one set of genes. So when it comes to crossing with a, something with lots of genes and something with just one gene, it really, they, they can't fit together very nicely when they're crossing. It's like licorice all sorts, Joe. <laughs> is it? <laughs> Yeah, I hate licorice all sorts. <laughs> Don't ask me about licorice all sorts. It's certainly so complicated. There's a lot of, of science and stuff going on. I mean, there's a lot of it's 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 about observing and understanding, and then you observe and you understand, and then you apply it. You apply what you've observed, and that's that's the thing. And gardeners have always done this. How do you think we learned how to graft them? How do you think we learned how to do things from cuttings? We watched what nature did, and then we learned how to do it slightly better. Yeah, and and that's what we do as as gardeners. Uh, candle power, incidentally, is in one of my many sort of folders of um, FloMo. I have FloMo pictures, things I see and screenshot off people's Instagrams, and then label them right. in my FloMo folder. You know where we are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like ten minutes down the road. Yeah, um, exactly. So if anyone does come round your nursery, it's certainly, you know, they're going to come away with a long FLOMO list. FLOMO, of course, being our term for the, the fear of missing out you get about plants that you see and want to grow. It might be in a magazine, on social media, in someone's garden, a nursery. In fact, my FLOMO, um, one of my many, came when I, I visited you, I think it was the very end of October last year, when we were allowed to do things like go to nurseries and you had the most amazing chrysanthemum, like these tiny little bright punchy pink button blooms. And was Julie, it called Julie, Julie Peterson? Julie Peterson. Oh, what it's new summer. to me and it's, it's a tiny little flowers, but it's such a vibrant color. Well, the most amazing color, isn't it? Yeah. It's wonderful. Yeah. Where did that come from? When it came to me, I went over and gave a lecture at the Hardy Park Western Counties uh, which they meet over near Pershaw in Worcestershire. And one of the people, they have, a, they have a little plant sales table, but this wasn't from the sales table. It was from a guy who I know very well, who's a really good plantsman. And he just said, here, trust buy this. So he'd obviously grown it and realized how fantastic it was. And plants people are like that. They will, they will share nice things around amongst themselves because that's what we do. We, we, we're about the joy and the beauty of plants. Absolutely, because that's how I got Julia Peterson. <laughs> 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 we, we, we've grown it for years in the garden here. And I mean, it is. Yeah. And we have a, we have a very small ball dahlia, the same colour called Rococo. Um, yeah, right. like little pointless spot, spots of colour that just zing. Absolutely fantastic. And it is a really, really lovely thing. So that's your Flomo Thunder. It is. Joe, what have you got? Have I, have, I, have, I, have I now got to make a list of all the things you want? <laughs> no, just one will do. 
if you can restrict yourself to one or, you know, we might allow two or three. <laughs> what parts I'm really looking for. Okay. So I'm really looking for um, a yellow buried butcher's broom. So a yellow buried butcher's broom was known to the Victorians and it was widely grown. It was written about. It must be in an old garden somewhere. It must still be there somewhere. And a friend of mine worked out where it had come from. And it was found in a little tiny population in one particular parish in Berkshire. And so I went to this parish and I found a population of butcher's broom that was mostly when you see butcher's broom in the wild, it's all exactly the same. It's pretty much these similar, similar, similar. There's no variation whatsoever. And I found a little population with an enormous amount of variation. I've been down there four years running and I've collected seed from this population and I'm growing the seed on and planting it out in the hopes that I will get my yellow buried ruscus. The last time anybody admitted to having this plant was in America. So there was a, a in the 1990s, uh, somebody produced, um, like the plant, we have the plant finder over here that, that tells you what plants to buy from where. Somebody did one from America and it was listed there. So it could be there, but trying to a, find it, and then B, get it out of America would be really difficult. So, you know, the, I'm really looking for a yellow-buried, you know, it's, the Latin is Ruscus aculeatus, but uh, yellow-buried butcher's broom. I'm looking for that. I think I've already told you um, I would love to be the first person to breed a double trim, which is a snowdrop with green all the way around on all of the petals and double. I'd love to be the first person to do that. So those are the things I'm kind of looking for. If that's what you want. <laughs> And that is real commitment. That is greater commitment than most of us with our Flomo, where we just, you know, put it into a search engine and buy it from somebody. Uh, Alan, what's your Flomo this week? Well, again, it's, it's, it's a berry theme in actual fact, because um, <clears throat> I'm intrigued by the fact that this could be fiction, I'm not sure, but I have heard that in, in Northern Ireland, there was an account of a white buried holly some years ago. Um, at the moment, I don't think there is a white buried holly anywhere in existence. And I wonder if, like Joe's butcher's broom, there could be one languishing in a hedgerow or an old garden somewhere in that part of the world. And uh, um, I just would love to have a, a holly with white berries. Ooh. Oh, OK. Well, now, uh, on that front, um, I was told of a holly with white berries in Norfolk. Well, it's not in my garden, Joe. <laughs> no, 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 no. Anyway, so we went off to look, and what we found was that they were actually very pale yellow. Yeah. And we found a wood where all of the hollies, and there were quite a lot of hollies in this wood, none of them were red. They were all variations on yellows, oranges, peachy colours. And I have propagated all of the different clones that were in that wood. And somebody who's got a big garden in North Norfolk who would like to plant out some of these lovely berry colours. And do you know anybody who <laughs> might have a big garden in North yeah, I, I know somebody that's, uh, that's doing kind of an understory in a very light woodland area um, yeah. where hollies would grow beautifully. But the thing is, if, if, you, had, if you had three of each yes. and you them on, then you'll see what I'm talking about. Because some of them have got very spiny leaves, some have got very entire leaves. Yeah. Some of them are yellow with just a shading, a blush of, um, of, of pink in them. Uh, you know, some one of them is the most amazing peachy colour. I've propagated all of them, um, but there wasn't a white one. But there, it was fascinating find find a wood of different coloured ones. That would be fantastic. Um, 
put me down, reserve them for me, please, and we'll talk terms later. And, uh, and can we make a plea that if anyone breeds a white holly, don't you think that would be perfectly called Alan Gray? That would be a perfect Alan Gray. I'll tell you what else would be really good on the holly front would be a coloured buried one that was variegated. Because so far as I know, there is no variegated holly with coloured berries. And well, I think that would be some red, you mean? Other than red. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah do you know? Exactly. Do you know? Of, do you know of any? No, not at all. I mean, I've been looking for. I keep a lookout for on the, our golden holly, which is his rust and gold. I keep a lookout yeah. for a sport on yeah. that, hoping yeah. we're going to get a variegated sport. But Absolutely. so far, no luck. Yeah, mm. and, and there, there's there's various yellow ones where there's black lava and there's various other named uh, yellow ones, um, but not a variegated one. So no. that would be that would be a fantastic plant again to be an Alan Gray, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, it would. <laughs> um, I I feel like I have learned so much in this podcast. It has been a revelation in terms of plant breeding, the commitment, the patience, um, the yeah, just the the enthusiasm it takes. In the end, I think your success is down to your your absolute passion and love for plants, Joe. I think it's all it's because I'm always all about the plants. It can be very annoying for other people around me, <laughs> but I am always all about the plants. And I think you know? also, I hope that it, it, it makes probably gardeners realise why sometimes when a plant is new, that it is quite expensive because it's taken for up to 20, could be 20 years of your life. Yes, and that's 20 exactly. People comment on the price, but then when you divide that price by 20 years, yeah. you know, it's not so much. No. And, and you know, you have to think, all those people, for instance, who developed all the rhododendrons, all the camellias, all of those people, they had to grow it from seed. And how many years did it take to seed? You know, those people put a lot of life, energy and commitment into creating all these plants. Um, and we don't see that story. We don't see the story. We see the fanfare. We see this wonderful plant um, on the stage, but we don't see that it was actually a lot of hard work behind yeah. there right. to make it. You know, so... Um, you know, you know, it's, it's not finding things is different. If you find something, that's different. You know, you can just go straight with it. But making things is is so much harder, and I think people really don't get that. Well, it's been a treat, Joe. Thank you so much for joining us. We had a few logistical problems making this work, but I'm very glad that we managed to overcome technology and uh, and connect. Thank you very much, and happy gardening. Happy gardening, everybody, <laughs> and happy plant breeding. Yeah, happy plant breeding. Yeah. Hey, Fordis here, just to say thank you so much for listening to Talking Dirty. You are now officially our favourite person. If you really liked it, please do subscribe because we'll be back for more plant-loving mayhem next week. And as you're our new favourite person, we don't want you to miss out. If you've got a question for Alan and the experts, you can email it to hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk. So happy gardening. And we'll see you, oh favourite person, next time.